This is one of those weeks when stocks were setting records for rising and falling, which is why we're glad we're not short-term traders. We're investors. Motley Fool Money starts now. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analysts Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. Good to see you both. Hey, hey. Chris. It's Earnings Palooza. We have so much to talk about. We don't even have time for a guest this week, but we do have a couple of stocks on our radar. Before we get to the earnings, I think we should start with just how bonkers the market has been lately. And by that, I mean some of the whipsaw movements of well-known businesses. A few examples. Last week, Netflix had its biggest drop in a decade. This week, Snap had its biggest gain ever. PayPal and Facebook had their biggest drops ever. And we will get to Amazon's huge day in a minute. But Jason, we also had a huge jobs report for December that came with a big revision upwards for November. And I am so glad I'm a long-term investor because the short term can just be really confusing at times like this. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's probably the best word. Confusing. It, it, it is. It's a lot of information at once, and it all seems to. A lot of it seems it seems seems very contradictory at times. Um, but I think to me, this these these are the stretches that really reiterate why we invest the way that we do here. Uh, we live in a world of headline-driven markets. I mean, they move on the daily, and predicting what's going to happen is is at this point, it is literally it's flipping a coin. I think um, so. If you want to gamble, that's great. Open a FanDuel account and have at it. At least you go in there with the understanding that you're gambling. But we are investors, obviously, and the stock market is the greatest wealth-generating machine in the world. Now, with that said. It rarely, and I mean rarely, operates on our desired individual timelines. And I think the longer you do it, the more apparent that becomes. Uh, so, so yeah, for me, it really, it really just take it takes me back to this is why we invest the way we do. It really is just volatility being the name of the game right now. And I, I want to circle back around to that jobs report because not that I can do any better, but this was such a large misestimation that it reminds me just how much I dislike economic forecasting, <laughs> at least with like weather <laughs> forecasting. I know there's like barometers or Doppler radars behind what they predict, but sometimes I feel like economists are just doing the weather person equivalent of licking their fingers and holding it up to the air. And I feel like that's what we saw this month. <laughs> Let's get to Amazon's fourth quarter profits being driven by AWS. No surprise there, Jason. Uh, the advertising division is now so big that Amazon is actually disclosing the number. And as we talked about on this show two weeks ago, Amazon announced it will increase the price of its Prime membership to $139. And all of that combined to a big day on Friday for the stock. 
Yeah, it, it was a big day. It seems for a long time on this show, uh, every earnings season, we just say, well, nothing to see here is the same old great Amazon. I, I will say, I think we can actually call this quarter a mixed bag. I think mostly it was really good. Um, there are some things, I think, to keep an eye on, though. Now, if we look at the numbers, you look at the, at the actual sales numbers there, this was a bit of an attention getter. I mean, sales up, excluding currency, sales grew just 10%. And for a business that's just routinely chalking up 20 plus percent, Growth, uh, that that to me is is just something. It's a little bit curious, I guess. I mean, granted, we're operating in, in unique times, uh, but operating income got cut in half uh, to three and a half billion dollars for the quarter. Net income of uh, $14.3 billion sounds like a really great number, but it is worth remembering that includes a pre-tax valuation gain of $11.8 billion from their investment in Rivian Automotive. Right, Rivian, we know, just went public. This is a an electric vehicle company that makes no money. Like literally, they are just starting to generate revenues. So you got to take that with a grain of salt, I think, as well. When you look at the retail operations, really the core Amazon business, retail operations across the board both chalked up. They chalked up operating losses, the U.S. and international. And international sales were actually down a tick. So uh, back to your point on AWS, clearly a bright spot. Sales grew forty percent, operating income forty nine percent. Hey, yeah, a nice little thirty-one billion dollar advertising business now, right? Chris, Twitter, what? Snap, who? Uh, raising the price of Prime to one hundred thirty-nine dollars uh, per per year. The monthly cost will go up two dollars a month, and I don't know why you'd pay for the monthly cost anyway. That equates to uh, one hundred eighty dollars a year. So just 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 up for the full year, Chris. Oh, come on, I mean every, everybody, just just up for the full year. Do us do us do us a favor. Um, but yeah, mixed bag, I think, but all in all, more good than bad. So let's get to the timing of the increase because I said two weeks ago on the show they're going to raise the price of Prime this year. I'm actually surprised they raised it this quarter, and I'm wondering if you think they might have pulled the trigger now as opposed to later in the year because of the revenue softness that you referred to. Perhaps I think also it's probably uh, it's probably a good time to, to bump that price up now because everybody is bumping prices up, right? Inflation is top of mind for everyone. Uh, if they wait six, nine months, perhaps twelve months to do this when inflation isn't necessarily the forefront of the conversation. Maybe maybe that's something that consumers push back on a little bit, but I think right now it's something that people can understand a little bit more because uh, prices are being pushed up everywhere we look. Alphabet announced a 20-for-1 stock split, which somehow overshadowed the fact that Alphabet's fourth-quarter results were strong across the board, and not surprisingly, Emily, Google Search leading the way. A really amazing quarter for Alphabet. They handedly beat expectations on their bottom line by over 10%. Revenue also beat expectations. But all anybody wants to talk about is this stock split, right? A 20 for 1 <laughs> stock split, which effectively decreases the average price per share to buy a single share of Alphabet. And as we all hopefully know, this fundamentally changes nothing for investors in Alphabet. A stock split does nothing except for make the average price of the share 
lower. But in practice, we see a lot of retail investors often associate the price of a share with valuation, which is to say they see a lower price stock to be perceived as cheaper. So there may be increased buying from retail investors as a result of this split. We saw this happen with other businesses like Tesla, although there's lots of other factors in play with Tesla as well. But stock split aside, this was an amazing quarter for Alphabet. The weird downside here was actually YouTube ad revenue. And this is interesting because, as Jason just mentioned, we're looking at Amazon come out with this $31 billion year ad business. Well, Alphabet has a $61 billion year ad business. Um, so, around double what Amazon is experiencing. So, smaller, I think, when you compare it than expectations with something like Amazon. And seeing the weakness come from YouTube ad revenue just makes us all realize how much competition there is for our eyes in the entertainment space right now. As I mentioned at the top, Facebook, sorry, Meta Platforms had its worst day ever. Shares fell 25% on Thursday after the company's fourth quarter results reflected what CEO Mark Zuckerberg called an unprecedented level of competition. Uh, part of that, Jason, is Apple's change to its operating system's privacy settings. That is clearly taking its toll on Facebook's advertising revenue. I think you called it Facebook on purpose, Chris. I don't think that was a slip. I think you I'm could- still <laughs> look. I'm still getting used to it. It took me a full year, if not longer, to get used to Alphabet instead of referring to it as Google. So uh, uh, apologies to the dozens of listeners, and I, I beg for their patience. Yeah, and don't even get me started on Block. But let's get back to Facebook. I mean, Meta. This was actually. I mean, this was a breathtaking sell-off, right? I think it took us all by surprise, uh, considering the scale of this business. But when you look at the numbers, I think it actually makes some sense. I mean, much like PayPal, this is not a business that's in trouble, right? And we'll talk about PayPal in a little bit, but they've got some work to do here. And there's some material risks going forward given this pivot toward the metaverse. So when we look at the actual numbers they recorded for the quarter, not all that bad. I mean, revenue up 20% for the quarter. You compare that to something like Alphabet's uh, 30, 33%, 34% growth, though, I think you can at least uh, get a better idea of, of who's winning that race. It's, it's, uh, it, it's something where Facebook, I think, is starting to, to witness some headwinds there in their model. Operating margin fell nine percentage points as uh, expenses well outpaced revenue growth at 38%. Earnings per share down 5%, but it's worth noting actually net income was down 8%. So there's a little bit of a, a share repurchase effect going on there. Bit of a one two punch there on guidance, right? I think you've got macro concerns. You've got inflation impacting advertising budgets, the new iOS standards that you mentioned as well. Uh, they're going to impact the top line of this business to the tune of about $10 billion this year in 2022. And so the revenue guide of $27 to $29 billion was just well below uh, expectations. And we know how that goes. The market uh, is going to reprice based on that new set of expectations. But I think looking further out, you know, the, the bigger risk, I think, for Meta, and, and this is going to be something that won't be apparent. Immediately, it's they're going to be spending a ton of money on this metaverse investment, right? I mean, whatever the metaverse may may be, Meta is is aiming to play a big role in it. They are going to spend tens of billions of dollars on this. If this doesn't pay off the way they think it might or they think it will, I mean, that's going to be a big problem for this business. And and the tough part for investors here is really understanding that these investments in the meta the metaverse really. 
that's not going to be like flipping a switch either, right? That's going to be something that just becomes more apparent over time. And I think it's fair to say that it, as much uh, success as Facebook has had, as Meta has had in the in the social media space, replicating that in, in the metaverse, I think it's going to be a tougher ask. I think it's going to be a tougher ask. And I think investors are starting to take stuff like that into consideration. Coming up right after the break, we've got the poster child for this week's craziness. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Emily Flippin. We don't obsess over short-term stock movements, but no business provides a better example of the whipsaw movements we discussed earlier in the show than Snap. The parent company of Snapchat saw its stock fall 25% on Thursday. Then Snap reported its first ever quarterly net profit, and shares on Friday rose 50%. Emily, please help me focus on the actual business here. Well, who knew that a social media platform that I exclusively use to take photos of my cat and send it to my mom (laughs) was so monetizable? And I say this a little sarcastically because I think part of what we're seeing here is a story of low expectations. The poor earnings reports from other platforms earlier in the week certainly set up expectations, as you mentioned, heading into this earnings report that were extremely low. And when Snapchat came out and said, hey, no, we're actually doing pretty well, the market was just stunned. And that's a bit of what we're seeing here. But revenue was still up 64% year over year, which is incredible. And the daily average users, which I think is even more impressive, grew 20% to almost 320 million globally. Now, it's important to remember that Snapchat's really only monetizing those across North America and Europe, but they see an opportunity to expand monetization across the globe. Uh, It really was, again, a power of those low expectations for this platform. I mean, we talked about Meta or Facebook, whatever you want to call it. They broke down these massive headwinds thanks to Apple's privacy changes. And expectations were for Snapchat to say, you know, hey, our guidance is also hit because of this. But heading into that, you know, we're seeing Snapchat actually come out and say, no, our ad transitions are better because, you know, we handle privacy with our ad targeting products a bit more consciously, right? I think they said something along the lines of our product were built with privacy in mind. So we'll see if those realities come to fruition when they continue to report in future quarters. But for the time being, Snapchat is doing pretty well for itself. The main story of PayPal's business for the past year has been the company's transition away from eBay as a payment platform. And PayPal's fourth quarter results reflected how hard that transition has been. Jason, I think you and I both like the job that Dan Shulman has done in the eight years he's been running PayPal. But I also think you and I agree he really hasn't done a great job of communicating this. Oh, Chris, how the tables have turned, right? Instead of the war on cash, it looks like we've got a war on PayPal instead. I say this as a PayPal shareholder of, of many years. PayPal 100% deserved the butt kicking it got this week. No, the business isn't in trouble, but we heard three words in the call that we don't like to hear transformation, investment, and pivot. And I think this all goes back to what you said at the top there. Leadership really dropped the ball on communicating here. Now, it's not all bad. Let's focus on the good news here, because the quarterly numbers were good. If you look at the 
total payment volume $340 billion. That was up 23% from a year ago. And they pushed through $3.2 billion of buy now, pay later total payment volume as well. That's now operating on a $13 billion run rate. So, not bad for essentially what is a homegrown offering for them. Venmo processed $60.6 billion in total payment volume, up 29%. Uh, they're now contributing. Venmo is now actually helping drive a sequential in increase in the overall take rate. So, total take rate for the quarter was 2.04%. That was up from 1.99% a quarter ago. But, you know, we get to what caused this sell-off? What what led investors to flee? And and you've got guidance there for revenue growth of 15 to 17 percent for the year. That was versus an expected 17.9 percent. It's ultimately going to result, though, in essentially flat earnings growth, which is a problem. And I think that really boils down to the user base. PayPal pulled a lot of success forward, right? They added a lot of users in a short period of time over the past couple of years for obvious reasons. Uh, that's starting to normalize a bit. Management now expects to add 15 to 20 million net new customers in 2022. And further, they no longer believe that the 750 million user target that they set here over the medium term is even really achievable. It'll probably take a little bit longer to get there. For context, they have 426 million actives today. Nothing to sneeze at, but you can see that forecasting does matter. So, they are focusing more on the quality of the user. They're going to be relying less on incentive programs to bring new users in. Uh, this matters because the quality of the user matters for PayPal, of, of, of their, their massive user base. Really, the majority of the volume comes from about a third of that user base. So, they put a lot of information out here that should have been uh, put out long ago, and, and that's frustrating. Uh, they have put themselves in a little bit, of, little bit of a position here. We're going for these next few quarters. We're just going to need to pay very close attention to what they say and really hold them accountable. Pinterest's fourth quarter results showed a small drop in global users, but average revenue per user was up 23%. Shares of Pinterest bouncing up nicely on Friday, Emily, but kind of like Snap, it seems like there were some low expectations going into this one. I think the words I'd use to describe myself as a Pinterest shareholder after this earnings report is cautiously optimistic. I've said this before, but Pinterest has always been a story about monetization, not user growth. And as you just mentioned, we saw monetization this quarter up 23%, which is what they need. Um, international monetization, so international average revenue per user, was even better, rising 62% in the quarter. It led to helping beat you know, the business beat on both the top and the bottom lines here. But management is also realizing their backs are against the wall. They can keep users steady. They can lose a bit of users when they have over 430 million monthly active users. That's okay. But they can't hemorrhage users. And this is what we saw this quarter. Uh, users declined globally 6% in the U.S. by 12%. Now, they blame some changes in Google's algorithm as a result of this big decline, but they can't be monitored monetizing at an increasing rate while also decreasing engagement. So, finding the way to balance both is going to be critical for, for Pinterest to perform well from here on out. Uh, we're just a few months removed from PayPal reportedly looking to buy Pinterest. How confident are you Pinterest will still be a standalone company two years from now? 
I'd say fairly confident. I think Pinterest is underrated as a social media platform. It's become so integral, especially in young American females' lives, that I think it's being underappreciated in terms of its market opportunity. What the question mark is right now is, what is Pinterest going to do to drive engagement from that audience? They already have this massive user base signed up, but they now are having to compete for the time in those eyes. So making sure that people are routinely coming back to that Pinterest app is going to be critical. But I think if they're able to do that, then Pinterest, in my opinion, is better as a standalone company than as a potential acquisition. Up next, we've got the latest on chips, not the tasty kind, the semiconductor kind. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. They pulled in just behind the bridge. He lays her down. He frowns. Gee, my life's a funny thing. Am I still too young? Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. Qualcomm posted strong profits in the first quarter and gave upbeat guidance. Jason, I'm not a shareholder, but for a variety of reasons, I would like the semiconductor chip shortage to end. And I know that Qualcomm is one of the companies that can help make that happen. Yes, yes, I think you're right, and it feels like that we're already seeing leadership with these these chip companies starting to use language that's kind of putting this stuff in the rearview mirror. Hopefully, Chris, so hopefully 2022 is shaping up to be better for you there. But if you look at Qualcomm itself, I mean, this was a really, really strong quarter, and I'll lead off with just what Christiana, a CEO, Christiana Mann said. In in the release, he said, "I quote: We're at the beginning of one of the largest opportunities in our history, with our addressable market expanding by more than seven times to approximately seven hundred billion dollars in the next decade." End quote. Now, Chris, to me, feels like there's an opportunity brewing here. I mean, Qualcomm is is kind of just uh, treading water here over the last year, but you you pan further out. Uh, this has been a wonderful investment over the last three years, up better than two hundred fifty percent, and I'm starting to see why uh, revenue growth. The 30 percent from a year ago resulted in net income growth of 38 percent and earnings per share growth of 41 percent. Again, a little bit of a share repurchase impact there, but it's nice to see that Qualcomm's repurchases are ultimately having an impact on that overall share count. They brought the share count down over 24 percent over the last five years. The the QCT business, the chip side of the business, the the other side of the business is the licensing side. But the, the QCT uh, business grew operating income by sixty two percent on thirty five percent revenue growth. They saw strong performance in handsets with revenues up forty two percent from a year ago. Uh, they saw strong performance in IoT revenue that was up forty one percent from a year ago. Uh, and, and all in all, it, it feels like this is a business that has a number of different uh, ways to win, so to speak, because it's handsets, it's IoT, it's all. Automotive, um, it, it's it's radio frequency, it's it's all of that. It, interestingly, and, and perhaps sadly, Chris, there was only one solitary mention of the word metaverse on the call. But it is something they're very excited about with partnerships uh, with with companies out there, including Microsoft and Meta. Uh, for the second quarter here, they are forecasting earnings uh, to come in at two dollars and ninety cents at the midpoint versus a dollar and ninety cents a year ago. Uh, and they're even so much as guiding out to thirty percent earnings per share growth for the third quarter as well. So, it feels like the tailwinds for this business just continue to grow stronger. Spotify showed strong growth in the fourth quarter, but guidance for 2022 sent the stock down this week. 
Emily, let's face it, most companies are not getting the benefit of the doubt from investors right now, and the drama surrounding Joe Rogan certainly does not go in the plus column. I describe this as a good earnings report that's really being overshadowed by negativity thanks to the way that this platform has become a beacon, I guess, for for misinformation and almost like a political fighting ground in some sense. But looking at the quarter itself, it was all good things from Spotify, right? Revenue grew. 24% monthly active users, which is that critical metric, as we just discovered with Pinterest, that grew 18% to over 400 million. So, tons of monthly users. And their adjusted net loss was less than half of what was expected this quarter. So, the actual earnings report itself was great. Now, the challenges around what has been portrayed in the media with Spotify recently, I think, is adding skepticism, mostly because of, as you mentioned, controversy surrounding. Joe Rogan and the $100 million relationship that Spotify has with Joe Rogan to be the exclusive distributor of that podcast. So it's going to be interesting to see how CEO Dan Eck continues to navigate these challenging waters because being a company that is having to deal both with the impact from users, musicians, and even politicians is not an easy position to be in. It's also a sign of just how big and influential a company Apple is, that Apple isn't making headlines this week, and yet all these companies we're talking about are dealing with Apple in one way or another. You know, Facebook is impacted by the changes to the iOS privacy settings. Uh, Spotify, uh, you know, has a couple of musical artists who say, "Hey, we don't want to be in your platform anymore." And when I opened up iTunes earlier this week, there's Apple Music just promoting these artists. Um, if you get to be big enough, eventually you're going to have to deal with Apple one way or the other. That's a fair criticism, but in Spotify's defense, they're so large now that they're ubiquitous. And I doubt any one or two departures from any specific artist is going to do a lot to take away those engaged monthly active users. When Spotify hasn't been able to get those exclusive rights to new albums in the past, it hasn't done anything to prevent users from engaging on the platform, even when they've been available in other places. I doubt this will be any different, but I hesitate to say that because we've seen the continued, you know, years long fallout with Meta and its perception from consumers and the government about its relationship with information on its platform, Spotify certainly doesn't want to find itself in the same situation. So, again, it all comes down to being proactive and managing it with tact. Jason, stop me if you've heard this before. Another strong quarter for advanced micro devices and strong guidance for the new year. <laughs> um, Lisa Sue has been running AMD since 2014. And not only is she one of the best CEOs in America, she's also one of the most under the radar. She's just quietly going about her business. And AMD is just, I don't want to say unstoppable, but this business and this stock has just been on fire for years. Well, I agree with you. I think Dr. Sue has just been a tremendous asset for this business, and, and, and shareholders have really benefited all along the way. You look at the five-year chart, the stock's up almost 900%. And I think that really, uh, things are poised to get better. I think on its own, there are plenty of reasons to like AMD, 
uh, over the coming years as connectivity continues to proliferate. You see investments in edge, cloud, uh, cloud and data center. They're all becoming greater opportunities, um, and they're helping AMD continue to branch out. I think the addition of Xilinx should even uh, open up a few more windows of opportunity for for the business. We'll, we'll talk about that shortly, but let's look at the quarterly numbers because there's a lot to like. Like you said, I mean, revenue $4.8 billion grew 49% from a year ago. Interestingly, I mean, you look at it, non-GAAP diluted earnings per share, 92 cents per share. That was up 77% from a year ago. I mean, just amazing the growth this business continues to chalk up. Strength in enterprise, embedded in semi-custom and segment revenue. I think that was that was something that really stood out. That that segment, the revenue of $2.2 billion was up 75% from a year ago. And they recorded their sixth straight quarter of greater than 45% year-over-year revenue growth. You add to that five. Five percentage point increase in the gross margin side as well, which is just you gotta love that. And so they continue to capitalize on the data center opportunity as as we continue to move more towards the edge and the cloud. And and then really, I think the icing on the cake for a lot of folks, the Xilinx acquisition has finally cleared hurdles with Chinese regulators. So that deal actually should close any day now, and that's really going to catapult their overall opportunity even more. So it brings in additional tailwinds in five G, data center, automotive, and Industrial, aerospace, and defense. Xilinx uh, is a higher margin business as well. Uh, so, so I, I think there are a lot of reasons why shareholders uh, should should be very optimistic about AMD's future. You know, Jason, so many businesses depend on semiconductor chips, and with the global shortage, rightly so. So many of them, uh, for the past year or so, have been talking about that impact on their business. But at some point in the future, we're going to get to that place where the shortage does not exist any longer. And don't you think there's going to be at least one company that comes out in their earnings report and says, you know, it was the shortage of chips that really hit us this quarter? And analysts will have to be like, um, there's no shortage anymore. Like with, like with like Qualcomm, AMD, all these businesses, at some point, there's going to be no more shortage, and therefore, the excuse is gone. That's right. At some point, you have to go with Alice and Chains. There are no excuses. And I think that time is still a ways away. Uh, the neat thing about the opportunity for these businesses is that as, as connectivity continues to grow, there are just so many, so many things out there that really require this technology. I mean, Chris, I got a Traeger grill for Christmas that's connected to the internet for, for crying out. Labs. I mean, the possibilities seem endless at this point. But I think you make a great point there too, in that as as optimistic as this space looks right now, because of obvious tailwinds. Let's remember those tailwinds don't last forever. And so, just like we saw a lot of success pulled forward here over the last couple of years with with the pandemic impacts, at some point that party ends, right, and things start to normalize a bit. So there there will be a point where these chip companies start to normalize a little bit, and that'll be something investors need to pay attention to. Starbucks' first quarter report was a window into how many headwinds the company is facing, from higher costs to staffing challenges, to say nothing of its second largest market, China. Uh, Emily, I'm a big fan of the CEO, Kevin Johnson. Even with the hits that the stock has taken recently, am I wrong to be optimistic about Starbucks? Not at all. In fact, I love the the kind of 
comparison here against chip businesses for Starbucks, if you'll humor me. Because when you ask the average person, which do you think is more cyclical, right? Demand for which wanes more? Is it something like chips or is it something like Starbucks? And I think a lot of people will assume that when economic times get tough, businesses like Starbucks are the ones who face the brunt of that, whereas chips continue in demand. And reality, we see a lot more cyclicality with start with a business like you know, AMD or, or Qualcomm than we do with Starbucks. It's become such a blue chip bellwether business. And even though they did miss this quarter in terms of earnings and revenue expectations, it really wasn't a complete surprise given the widely publicized challenges with labor, supply chains, and inflation. But even with the miss, Starbucks does what it does best. It had a great really impressive quarter. Revenue rose nearly 20%. And importantly, same-store sales uh, across the globe were up 13%. Domestically, that was even higher at 18%. So, the demand for coffee here has not changed. And actually, if you look at the change in price for Starbucks products since just October, Starbucks has risen prices three times, largely to keep up with all those challenges that I mentioned earlier. And it really hasn't done a lot to change demand for its products. So, while they did update their guidance to be slightly more conservative, which is contributing to some of that skepticism we see today, um, when you look at the actual business performance itself, I mean, Starbucks is doing what it does best, which is sell coffee. Up next, we've got a business partnership just in time for Valentine's Day. We've got a couple of stocks on our radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. They don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. A couple of things to get to before we get to the stocks on our radar. McCormick reported fourth quarter results last week, and maybe it took investors a few days to digest the results, because on Friday, shares of the spice maker hit a new all-time high. Jason, I know this is one of your favorites. It is. I'm an owner, and I've been behind the stock for a long time for a lot of reasons I've stated before. But it was an impressive quarter. They grew sales 9% organically for the fourth quarter. Um, they, they are calling for 5% uh, annual growth here for 2022. Uh, again, very encouraging. And, and I think they've made some acquisitions that have really paid off. They now hold the number one and two spots in the hot sauce market with Frank's and Cholula, respectively. And Chris, I'm going to tell you something here. Over the holiday season, I was working on a recipe. Okay. You know, I, I like to grill, I like the barbecue, I like to, to smoke stuff. But I was working on a recipe over the season and I perfected it. Okay. It utilizes a lot of McCormick stuff too. I call it Big Daddy's Boy Howdy Mustard Sauce. Okay. This is a mustard barbecue sauce. I made it. It's my recipe. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But McCormick, give me a call because I got a feeling I've got your number three shareholder right there. Wow. That's, yeah. uh, you went in a direction I was not expecting there. Well, yeah, hey, you know, listen, you listen, you listen every week. We're going to give you something new. Uh, real quick before we move on. Um, 
the dividend aristocrat status of this business does not appear to be threatened at all. I don't think so, and it's just such a reliable business, and that's why they they really take a lot of pride in that. They raise their dividend again to uh, to maintain that status. So I suspect that it is a point of pride for leadership that they will they will not relinquish anytime soon. I'd imagine. This week, DoorDash and Shake Shack partnered up to create a limited edition dating app called Eat Cute. From now through Valentine's Day, people can go to letseatcute.com, create a dating profile with a photo, and share how spicy they like their food. And once they are matched up with a compatible person, they'll receive a promo code for Shake Shack's buffalo chicken sandwich delivered, of course, by DoorDash. (laughs) Emily? I'm not saying it's cause and effect, but I will say that shares of both these stocks are up since the promotion started on February 3rd. Oh, let me be clear. I love a good gimmick, but there is no way that I could review this story without experiencing it myself. And I apologize to my boyfriend, but I did have to go make a profile, obviously, to get my free chicken sandwich. And uh, the experience was interesting. They made it very clear the app was not for chatting. It was only for sending sandwiches. I went through, I liked about 100 profiles, um, and nobody liked me back. So, I don't get my chicken sandwich, I guess. (laughs) We just need to get the word out. Uh, Maybe maybe once uh, people hear this episode of Motley Fool Money, uh, get some more people on the app, and uh, we'll check back with you next week, see if you actually get the sandwich. But it's you know, dare to dream. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Yeah, taking a look at Chipotle, ticker CMG. They've got earnings coming out Tuesday, February 8th. I'm going to be very interested to see how they frame the state of the consumer and inflation. Uh, Last quarter, they talked a good bit about it, from wage inflation to construction and everywhere in between. Uh, But management is exercising patience in regard to this. But there was an interesting quote from last quarter's call. I I have to call this out. They said, and I quote, there is food inflation as we talked about. We don't know how much of this is temporary or transitional versus permanent, but what we do know is we've got what we believe is great value. Our customers continue to appreciate Chipotle. They love the convenience, they love the value, and here's the kicker, Chris. And so, we believe we've got pricing power really better than almost anybody, if not everybody, in the industry. So, I think this is going to be really fascinating to see how they frame this this quarter, particularly as we just saw Starbucks, uh, as an example, we saw Starbucks just start to pass along price increases as well. So, I'm kind of interested. Is my burrito bowl getting more expensive? I want to know, Chris, because you know what? Even if it does, I'll still pay it. Dan, question about Chipotle? Yeah, Jason, did you know that I'm a Chipotle shareholder? (laughs) (laughs) Well, me too. Dan, welcome to the club. I bought in 2011, and I'm having a good time as a Chipotle shareholder. I don't know about you. You got to be, I've I've owned those shares for about that same time, and you got to be feeling really good about that call right now. I am. I'm also a Chipotle shareholder. Am I the only one confused that they've got this marketing message out there about their um, plant-based chorizo that they refer to as this is the best chorizo we've ever made? And I'm like, wait, I- so it's better than you know actual chorizo? I'll tell you what. I will say, my daughter tried that uh, last week or so when we last had Chipotle, and I, I she gave me a bite of it to try. I will say it is very, very good. I'm still confused. Emily, what's on your radar this week? 
Well, it's going to be hard for me to, to compete with plant-based chorizo, which is you know, the best chorizo. But I have a, a decent cybersecurity company for you. Uh, the business name is Tenable. The ticker is T-E-N-B. They're a cybersecurity firm. I think it's underappreciated by the market. Um, had a really impressive quarter this past week. Generated massive 30% free cash flow margins. Um, and they're getting more traction with enterprise customers with their Tenable I.O. and Tenable EP solutions. Now, I know that it's an extremely competitive Competitive space, but in some sense, a rising tide really does lift all boats. And when you compare it to the valuations of other cybersecurity firms in the market, I'm thinking mainly about CrowdStrike here, it is much cheaper. So I could see it being added as a basket approach to tackling the cybersecurity industry. Dan, question about Tenable Holdings? Yeah, Emily, what kind of plant based meat <laughs> substitute products is Tenable introducing <laughs> to the market this year? Well, they actually force all of their in-house employees to eat at least one plant-based meal a day. <laughs> However, they do ensure that it's in salad form. Um, so you can take with that what you will. It's not quite Chipotle. You can't get your rice. But as long as you're eating your plant-based salad at Tenable, you're okay. Wait, wait, is that is that real? No, I'm, I'm being 100% sarcastic. <laughs> okay. I'll just add, Dan, Chipotle is not doing anything to keep your network secure. Uh, I suppose. All right. <laughs> What do you want to? That makes it harder. Hey, I got one bumper sticker on my car, and it says "I love tacos so much." So here we go. I'm taking Chipotle to the moon, baby. There we go. <laughs> Hang on to those shares, Dan. Emily Flippin, Jason Moser, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Drop us an email: podcast at fool.com. Send us your questions, your feedback: podcast at fool.com. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. See you next time.